Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Good morning, you guys. Welcome. Welcome to Hope. It's it's good to have uh, our very own Pastor Savannah back leading worship after, uh, yeah. She didn't hear any of that because she's outside, but uh, uh, it's good to have her back. She was on the mission field in the Mediterranean, and uh, I'm sure she has some cool stories to share. And um, If you don't know me, my name is Chris Matley. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be cracking open the Bible today. Um, if you're just joining us, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we're in a series uh, called Along the Way. Let me just catch you up real quick, all right? So we've been reading through the book of the back half of the book of Acts, the missionary journeys of Paul um, and some of the other apostles. And our, our title for this series, Along the Way, comes from the Great Commission of Jesus. When Jesus um, shared his last moments with his disciples, he told them to go out into all the world and to make more friends of Jesus. And, uh, and he did this by saying, he said, as you do this, do it along the way, as you go. In other words, through the normal course of your life, uh, make more friends for me. And so we're examining the history of the first century Christians who did just that as they kind of find their way along the way. And um, so real quick before we get into Acts, just, this is just a side note. I was having a conversation with a friend this week and, um, and something kind of, uh, this thought came to me, and I thought I would share it with you, which is that, you know, sometimes I think in American church, we've, we've allowed a little bit of a culture to develop that gives the impression that we, that we need to go to church in order to receive from spiritual leaders. You know, we prop people up, and, um, and we, we put them in a place between us and God, and and we, you know, we have this belief that if we can just find that one dynamic, charismatic leader that they'll say something or sing something or do something that will change our life and make our life better, and then we can go about our normal life. This is a human frailty that we have to constantly revert to this desire to, to put up a, a priest between us and God, right? But it's a frailty. Um, it's a vulnerability that we have. And in fact, Jesus' sacrifice, one of the many things he accomplished on the cross, was to remove this need once and for all. He made all of us as individuals priests unto our God. Meaning, meaning that if there's a barrier between you and God, it was built by your own two hands. All right? So, therefore, what I'm doing today in standing here and sharing the word with you, uh, the role I'm playing is that of a receptionist. All right? I'm a reception. Now, we, we are all in need of a doctor. We have a spiritual condition, okay? So if you came here, it's likely you came here to see the doctor, Dr. Jesus. And I'm just here to help point the way to his door, okay? All right? That was just for free. There's no extra charge for that. That was just a side note. All right? Okay, let's, let's get to it. So we're, we're in Acts chapter 18 through 20. There's no way that I could, it's so rich, you guys, there's no way I could read all that today in front of you and talk about it. We'd be here for hours. So I'm just going to give you just kind of the highlights real quick, okay? So Acts chapter 18 through 20. If you want to read this on your own, I highly recommend it. Some really cool stuff happens. Paul makes friends with Jews and Greeks alike. 
Uh, he lives in the city of Corinth for 18 months. He gets a haircut. That's in there. Go and check. It's in there. Um, he goes to Ephesus. He goes to Jerusalem. Uh, he comes back to Antioch. Uh, we get to meet Apollos for the first time. Um, and it seems like Luke acknowledges in these chapters that there are wild strains of Christianity. This is before it was called Christianity, by the way. It was just called The Way. There are, there are, the movement is not just spreading. It's springing up independent of some of the key leaders. In other words, there's, there's people that are out there following and believing in Jesus that are not uh, following people like Paul or, or James or Peter. Some of these early Jesus followers seem to be former students of John the Baptist, for example. We're going to meet some of those in just a minute. We get to meet uh, Priscilla and Aquila, coolest couple name ever. I mean, if you're living in a small town and you're Aquila and you go, what's your name? Priscilla. Let's get together, right? I mean, that's like, come on. Priscilla and Aquila, together with Paul, they open a camping supply store together, which is the setup for the greatest reality show never filmed, I think. It's amazing. Now, they go into the tent-making business together, right? They become key leaders together in Corinth and serve together. And, and Priscilla, um, who's the wife of Aquila, uh, throughout the scriptures, whenever you read their names together, you see that Priscilla's name uh, precedes Aquila's, which implies that she was, even as a woman in this uh, very male-dominated culture. She was a very key leader and very important to the movement and to Paul. Speaking of the city of Corinth, so we have to talk about Corinth for just a second because uh, it lends context to what we're talking about. First century Greek culture um, uh, tells us, even outside of the Bible, that, that Corinth was a city that was known to be filled with arrogant, sex-crazed drunkards. That was, that was what Corinth was known for. All right. In fact, in many popular Greek plays from the time, the, the term playing the Corinthian meant to be an actor that was playing the part of like a debauched clown. I mean, like if you were playing the Corinthian, you're like you were the skeezy, like bad guy. Right. So the, it had a bad reputation. That's not good. That's not good. Right. But Paul goes there and he uh, he preaches the gospel. The reason why it's important for us to know that is because later Paul would write two of his lengthiest epistles, First and Second Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. And these, this is years later, you guys. And you know what he addresses? Those same issues, which tells us something important, which is that um, even then, these brand new followers of Jesus, as they began to follow uh, the ways of Jesus, they brought with them the baggage from their former life into their new life. So yeah, they're just like us, right? People just like us. Also, there are seven brothers in these chapters uh, uh, called the Sons of Sceva. They got beaten and stripped naked by a demon-possessed dude, which is the setup for the worst reality show ever made. Um, and then Paul starts a riot, sort of. Um, and he goes to someone's house, and he speaks so long into the night that a guy falls out of a window and dies. And then Paul goes down and prays for him. He rises from the dead, and that's not the amazing part of that story. The amazing part is he goes, okay, well, I'm not done, so let's go back. I have two more hours of teaching. It's incredible. Finally, Paul shares a tearful goodbye with the Ephesian church leaders after spending uh, two years 
uh, with them in whom we had, you know, these are people he had invested a bunch in. Um, so we're going to pick up in that part of the story. We're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to read a little bit in chapter 20, and then we're going to jump back, actually, back in time to chapter 19. So this is chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. If you want to look at, if you, if you brought a Bible or you want to crack open a Bible on your device, it's if, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. We'll also have it up on the screen. So it says, from Miletus, Paul sent to, the, to Ephesus for the leaders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. It was a tough time. This was not an easy period of Paul's life. This was his third missionary journey, and he came up against a lot of resistance. Um, Friends he knew were, were beaten and imprisoned and killed. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So at this point in this Uh, in this story, in the story of the church, in fact, at this point, uh, predominantly the persecution that was coming against Christians was centered around Jerusalem. The the Sanhedrin, the the religious establishment, um, was seeking to stamp out Christianity. Now, a lot of times we think of the persecution of the church as taking place at the hands of Rome, and and that did happen, but that came later. Um, That intensified after Paul's life. The persecution that he's talking about comes directly from from the Sanhedrin, uh, a group of religious leaders that Paul used to count himself among, like he was one of those. So think about that. He he feels compelled. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He's telling his friends, "I've been with you. We've had a good time. We've we've um, you know we've we've raised up leaders. We've built uh, a network of churches. But I have to go back, and I don't know what's going to happen to me there." Okay. He has good reason to be concerned. He says, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, you'll note that he doesn't say the Holy Spirit, that God protects me from hardships. He he doesn't say he keeps me from experiencing hardships. Just says that the Holy Spirit has given him notice. You will experience these things. These things await you. See the difference there? Right? However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you uh, among whom I have, uh, I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That's quite a statement, right? I'm leaving. I'm not coming back, he says. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That's a very odd, in English, that's a very odd-sounding sentence there. I'm innocent of your blood, for I haven't hesitated to preach the gospel. What he's saying there is that I've given you the tools. I've given you the tools. Um, What you do with them now is in your hands. It's between you and God. I've given you everything that I have to give. 
He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. In fact, we see that this does happen. When we read First and Second Corinthians, Paul addresses some of these people. by He calls people out by name. Like, like you're letting this person lead you in this way, and, and, and that's wrong. Remember what I taught you, he says. He says, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to you, uh, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I haven't coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. So what's he doing here? He's saying, I came here with nothing, but I didn't ask you for anything. I built up a tent-making store with Priscilla and Aquila, and I supplied my own needs. He's, he's talking about his own character. He's saying, I, I, have, I have served you and asked nothing of you, right? So you should trust my words, is what he's saying. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. That is a poignant goodbye, is it not? Right? A lot takes place just in those verses. It's really moving to me to read these stories and see that these were real people that experienced things just like you and I do. They had real um, victories and real losses and real sorrows. You know, there's an ideal that drives people in affluent cultures like ours or like the Corinthians. And this ideal is that we, we ought to take everything that we can for ourselves while the taking is good. When you say it like that, it sounds ugly and greedy, but we all partake in this ideal. Get what you can while you can, while the getting is good. To acquire wealth and consolidate power to ensure that yourself or others like you remain in control and have more power over others that are not like you, right? This is an ideal that is prevalent in our culture and the culture of the Corinthians. This is what Paul is speaking to. The great philosopher of the Rebel Alliance, Admiral Akbar, has something to say about that. Let's see this quote from Admiral Akbar here. Yep, it's a trap. It's a trap. This way of thinking, this idea that, that life is about getting what you can get while you can, it's a trap. It's a trap. The reality is that Jesus' brand new kingdom that Paul preached so passionately about promotes precisely the opposite ideal. If we acquire something of value, we use it to benefit others. Isn't that what Paul said there? He said it's that kind of hard work that helps us to help the weak, right? If we happen to come into possession of some measure of power, then we leverage it to help those without and to elevate those that have no voice. The first ideal is a trap because the pursuit of wealth and power is a sinkhole. It gets harder to get out the longer you're in, right? 
I think this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, he, he gave this parable. He said, it's harder, do you remember this? He said, it's harder for a rich man uh, to get into heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That's a very odd turn of phrase. And we've misinterpreted that, I think, in the church sometimes where we think, well, uh, you shouldn't be rich. You shouldn't have money. Um, but, but in fact, if you look at the first century uh, culture that Jesus was speaking into, a group of people that were poor beyond poor and oppressed, if you look at the context there, if someone was rich among them, it's very likely the implication is that they got that way by betraying others, by stepping on the backs of others to get that, right? They, it's not like uh, a world that, like the one we live in, the country that we live in, where you know, hard work and uh, integrity will sometimes, in fact, honest, honestly, often, get you ahead in life. It wasn't like that. If you were wealthy, you probably stepped on poor people to get there. And so Jesus is saying, for that person who's done that, it's harder for them <laughs> It's, it's hard for them to get in heaven. And he wasn't talking about dying and going to a spiritual place. He's talking about the new kingdom that he was bringing about by instituting a new set of values. It's hard for this person that steps on poor people to live in this new kingdom. This is what Paul said. He said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. That's our goal right there. That's our goal, to live like our lives no longer belong just to us. Your life is yours. It is. But when you say yes to Jesus, it also becomes his. And, and here's the mystery. I don't completely understand this, but I know it to be true. I'm living my life. But when I say yes to him, he's also living my life through me. Both are true. So it's no longer just mine alone. That's what Paul means when he says, my, worth, my life is worth nothing to me. He doesn't mean it has no value. It means it doesn't just belong to him. It's easy to say, right? Easy to say. You know, Paul was 56 at this point in the story when we're, we're reading here. He's, he's been in ministry for 30 years. He's walked the equivalent distance of, of walking between L.A. and New York over four times. If you map out his missionary journeys, yeah. It's a lot of times, and he did it in sandals, so, so that's something. He'd been beaten and starved and imprisoned and shipwrecked, snake-bitten, that happened, uh, jailed, stoned, not, not the fun kind, and chased out of towns and cities all over the Mediterranean. God doesn't ask a lot of those that follow him. He asks everything, Right? Some years ago, when Amy and I were new parents, um, we, had, uh, we were visiting my parents up in Oregon. We're not snow people. I'm just going to level with you. We grew up here. Like, I'm, we're not snow people. We're totally unprepared for things that happen in snow. A lot of things happen when you're in snow. We were walking downtown with my parents in Sisters, Oregon, snow banks all over, and piles of icy, slushy, gross stuff. And here's the thing. I didn't know this, but there, first of all, there's a lot of dogs in Central Oregon, like a lot of dogs, a lot of big dogs, and people still walk their dogs. I just thought all the dogs went home when it snowed. No, they, they walk their dogs, and these dogs still do what dogs do, which is leave huge steaming piles of things behind in the snow, in the slush. Well, our youngest, our oldest, our oldest was very young at the time, uh, um, 
she went running out into the snow and tried to climb up this snowdrift and slid down into one of these piles of disgusting. It's just, and it was like, ah, like a toddler does, ah, you know. And Amy goes running up and she kind of kneels down and I come running up behind her and as I'm six feet away and I can already smell it. Like it just, oh, it's like, it's horrible, right? I, it, it's, I'm going to tell you, it's the worst thing that ever happened to me. I'm just going to tell you. Um, I've had a pretty easy life. I, I, run, I come running up and I look and Amy is like, and the kid is like from head to toe, just like smeared all down the back. And Amy is, it's now on her, you know, and she's trying to like peel the layers off. And, and I walk up and I just kind of went like, she looked at me and I just went, I can't. <laughs> I know that makes me a horrible person, and it, but I'm just being, I'm, this is a place where we're honest and real about these things. I just said, I can't. And she goes, she looks right at me. If you've met Amy, you, you'll believe this. She looks right at me. She goes, there is no can't in parenting. Get your game face on. We're doing this together. And I'm like, yes, yes. And I, she goes, I need you to run to the car and get the baby wipes from the kit. It's right over there. And I go, yes. And I'm, as I'm walking to the car, this thought fully inhabited me. I can say this now. I was so ashamed of it then, but I'm just going to tell you now. I thought, what if I climbed in the car and I just started driving? I, I recognize that I would have to start a new life. Like, my old life would be behind me and over forever. I could never go back. But, you know, like that, that thought entered my mind. But I did go back with the baby wives and we solved the problem. Here's the thing about parenting or anything else important in life is that you, the sacrifices in the moment, initially, they seem enormous. But, you know, I have a teenage daughter now. Like, looking back, like, that was gross, but, like, I've seen way, way worse, you know? Like, I'm a, I'm a grizzled veteran at this point, you know? The sacrifices seem huge until you make them, and then it becomes a lifestyle. That's what Paul is talking about here. Have you ever heard someone quote this, uh, uh, quote this like it's a verse? God will never give you more than you can handle. That's 100% not in the Bible. That's not anywhere in any Bible ever. It's not true. Life, God doesn't need to give you anything or not give you anything. Life gives us more than we can handle all the time, right? That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, let's talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit. And I want to put this big truth idea right out here, right here at this point, which is that what we give, what we sacrifice, pales compared to what we are gifted what we give pales compared to what we are gifted. We're going to jump back into uh, a couple verses into 19 for a second. We're, so we're, going, we're traveling back in time before that tearful goodbye that we just read about. This is, this is Paul, Paul first arriving in Corinth. Okay? It says, while Paulus, Apollos was at Corinth, this is chapter 19, verse 1, by the way, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus where he found some disciples, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So these are followers of Jesus. And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what, what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. So they're talking about John the Baptist. So think about that for a second. This is wild. Like, these, these men 
and likely their wives and their families. They had followed John the Baptist. They'd been baptized into repentance. They heard that there was a Savior. And at some point, they met him and heard his teachings, and they became followers of Jesus. And then they went on. This is an independent strain of Christianity that Paul just runs across. It's out there in the wild. He says, what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. So in other words, they were... So if you don't know what baptism is, it's... Um, in this case, John baptized people by uh, immersing them, submerging them in water. As a, as a public, symbolic act, I have repented and left behind my old life, and now I live a new life. And we do this today. We do this symbolic act. We, uh, sometimes we go down to the beach and get in the water, you know, and, and it's a way of public, publicly expressing that we are living a new life. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, listen to this, the Holy Spirit came on them. So they were, they were already followers of Jesus, but then this second event takes place here, right? The Holy Spirit comes on them. It says they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. There were about 12 of them in all. Well, that's a convenient number, isn't it? Look at that. There's 12 of them. Paul enters the synagogue, and he speaks boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been following with us in this series, you know that this is a part of Paul's rhythm. Every town he goes to, he starts out, he goes to the synagogue, and he tries to persuade Jews and God-fearing Greeks the message of Jesus. But watch what happens here. It says, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. That means they were speaking poorly about uh, the way of Jesus. So Paul left them. So he tried the thing that he always tried to do, and it failed. He took the disciples, the twelve, right, with him, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia and heard the word of the Lord. This is profoundly significant. I don't know if this jumps out at you, but the reason why this is so significant is that what, what Paul did here, it, he, he began a work that didn't begin in the established uh, uh, religious center in the synagogue. He met in a public hall in a place that didn't even, you know, didn't even look like a church, Right? I don't know that it had skate ramps, but it, you know, it didn't look like a church. Um, it, it had been used for other things. And the reason why it worked is because of the Holy Spirit. The reason why uh, some 15 or 20 years later, there were seven churches in, the, in this region, a network of churches for John to write the book of Revelation to is because of this moment right here. Paul, through these 12 men and the move of the Holy Spirit, went on to reach over 2 million people in the province of Asia Minor. And it was because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a topic that some people go, really? You know, they, because... Uh, you know, this is a, this is a thing that, that Christians have not always gotten right, okay? Can we, I mean, we're honest about the poo story. We can be honest about that, right? This is, this is, we haven't always got this right. And because there are 
uh, in different faith traditions, there are a lot of different ways of interpreting these stories and verses. I think it's good for us to be mindful of that and charitable when we speak about these things. But here's one thing that seems clear that we can all agree on. Baptists and charismatics alike can, can agree on this. It seems clear from this story that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that, that one of the profound evidences of this baptism, this second uh, event in the life of a Christian, is that it, it gives us the power to live the Christian life. Right? Have it, has it ever seemed like the Christian life is hard? It's not hard. It's impossible. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. This gift comes to us independently of the free gift of salvation. Salvation is amazing, but we also need the Holy Spirit. I think it's appropriate that we acknowledge this gift that, and, and acknowledge that this gift is on offer to us today. If you're in this room, this gift is on offer for you today. You know, maybe like the disciples of John the Baptist, maybe some of you have never experienced this gift. You're like, I'm first, I'm just now hearing about the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that you could be bathed in the power of God. So that, that's what that means, baptized. It means to be, to be washed, to be filled up, to be submerged in the power of God. Maybe some of you who, uh, you've experienced this before. You said, I've experienced the power of God, but I haven't felt submerged in it in a really long time. I think I've started off my own strength again at some point. That same Holy Spirit is available to all of us right now. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find Hope. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.